Go ahead and turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 16. If you have a Bible, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 16, page 992, I think, uh, in the church Bible there in the uh, rack in front of you somewhere. We continue in our series through uh, the book of 1 Timothy. And this message I've titled, Serving the Church, Upholding the Truth. And we're going to dive right into the text this morning. And so whether you've found it or not, would you stand for the reading? Let's give attention and reverence to God's word as he speaks, beginning in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are grateful for your presence, for your word, and God, that it's a living and true word that you give life to by your spirit. God, would you quicken us to hear and receive it? And Father, we pray that in this moment that you would have all of our attention. We want you to have it, even as there are other things that might demand it or call for it. So God, would you just still our busy minds? Would you settle our hearts? God, would you give uh, focus to our attention and even to my words, Lord, that all that you're doing here um, this morning might be brought to this point where you want to speak to us. And so, God, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good. God, I do ask, as always, you would move me out of the way and just use my voice as an instrument to communicate what you want to communicate to your people. We ask you to do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, if you're just joining us, we're going through a series um, on First and Second Timothy, Paul's letters to Timothy, uh, some of the, what we call the pastoral epistles. And he had just finished in the previous passage outlining the qualifications for elders, and then he moves to the qualifications for deacons that we just read. And in fact, 
Um, I originally outlined to take both of those together, verses 1 through 13, um, in one message. There were reasons why I, I wanted to separate them, but then where that leaves me is sort of compressing what could be two sermons into one. Uh, so you have the qualifications for deacons and then this section on the mystery of godliness. And so um, hopefully we can do that and, and put those two together in a way that makes sense. And again, even if I can't, my prayer was just now that the Holy Spirit would. <laughs> and so uh, we'll ask him too. But we want to look here at what's entailed in this passage in serving the church and upholding the truth, as I've titled the message. The first point there being what it tells us about serving the church. As you uh, may have heard before, the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which just means servant. Uh, that's all a deacon is, or at least that's all that that name uh, entails, is that they're servants. So verse 8 could literally be translated, servants likewise must be dignified. In fact, it, up in verse uh, 1, it, it refers to the office of overseer. That word was, tr it was the, gr the Greek word episkopos, or bishop, as we know it, by an office. But it was translated as overseer. This one could be translated as servant rather than left as uh, deacons. But it's obvious that very, very early in the life of the church, there, were, uh, there was a special group of laborers in the church for whom servant became their title and not just their function. So this is not unlike when you go to a, a restaurant and your hostess seats you and says, your server will be right with you. Well, your server is going to serve you, but server is also their title. Right? So, it, so it is, so it is and was in the life of the church uh, that deacons were servants. It was their title and their function. And while anyone in the church can serve, there are countless ways you can do so, by the way. As a matter of fact, we probably still have some of those little lists floating around, right? Uh, where you can not only serve, but you can serve by helping the deacons. Um, and so there's uh, the countless ways that anybody can serve in the church, but it's clear there were people appointed to lead in serving in the early church. And even so, the Bible really just gives us bits and pieces about what their responsibilities were. It's one of those things, once again, some of, some of what you find, especially in the epistles, is... Um, is there's something spoken to people who obviously understand all of the context that they're living out, and we don't have all of that context. Does that make sense? In other words, you're speaking to people, he knows, they know exactly all of what deacons do in that first century church. We have just bits and pieces of it in the New Testament. But there's no place in the Bible where their responsibilities are clearly defined. Uh, we, we get a clue from Acts chapter 6, when seven men were appointed to ensure that the Hellenist widows were served equitably with the Hebrew widows. You may remember about that story. There was a little, uh, a little conflict that emerged there. And so the apostles recognized it as a legitimate concern, but they said, we can't distract ourselves. We can't step away from the ministry of the word in order to serve tables. So why don't you choose seven men from among you? We'll appoint them to the task. And so those were seven men appointed to serve, and they weren't called deacons, but we, also, we, we often think of them as proto-deacons. It was sort of the prototype 
of, of what would become deacons in the diaconate um, because of their responsibility to serve. But, but perhaps what's most important to glean from that and maybe gives the most insight into the role of deacons down through the centuries is that the reason they did that, as I just uh, referenced, is the apostle said, we must devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It wasn't that serving tables was unimportant. It was just for the calling that they had, it was more important that they devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they said, let's let others do these, meet these physical, temporal needs. And so uh, these men were appointed to that, that task. And what that means then is that deacons can do any variety of service tasks that enable elders, as it's handed down from the apostles, elders to continue in the ministry of word, the word and prayer. A whole variety of things. But that's the, that's the uh, driving principle, in other words, is what can I take off of your plate? That's essentially what the deacons do fundamentally. I'll give you a good illustration of that. Just a little over a year ago, um, I wanted to have a luncheon after church for kind of to introduce missional communities to the congregation. I had sort of teed it up in a, in a sermon and said, we're going to have this lunch. I want to tell you uh, what the vision is for this and how we're going to kick it off and that kind of thing. And so I called uh, Jerry Cannon, who was chairman of the deacons at the time, and said, hey, I want to do this lunch. Here's what I have in mind. He asked me a couple of questions and said, okay, we got it. So don't think any more about it. Oh, we'll figure it out. Now, that was actually a pretty big deal at that time because I wasn't even sure what I wanted. Uh, but he, said, he assured me he'd figure it out. But the point was, that's exactly the heart of the diaconate is to say, we got it. You don't worry about that. Uh, you focus on what you need to focus on. And so knowing that, there are all kinds of responsibilities deacons can take on that enable elders to focus on the teaching and oversight and shepherding responsibilities. And that might include um, facilities things like it does in our church, all kinds of little facilities issues that they tend to, logistical considerations, um, benevolence and care ministry. So we have a storehouse. There's a whole variety of things that deacons can do. As a matter of fact, in some churches, they use their deacons very intentionally and strategically in an organized fashion in their pastoral care uh, ministry efforts. That in the way that they have planned to respond to a variety of pastoral care needs, uh, when I say pastoral care, what sort of follow, falls under that umbrella. So visiting the sick and, and um, you know, all kinds of things, ministering to people. Uh, some, many churches will use their deacons in that way. It could include uh, collecting and counting offerings. Um, those are, again, that would be a task. Elders don't need to be uh, active in doing. It could include grilling 200 burgers anytime they're requested. And that happens often around here, whether 200 or some other number. But you see, it's, it's really a variety of tasks. And, and because it's not so clearly defined in the scriptures, um, it's, it's different in different churches and it's been different in different traditions down through the ages. As a matter of fact, in the EPC, um, it's left to the local church whether they even have deacons as an ordained office. But the churches that do have them, they, however they use them, uh, what should be the focus and priority is those physical and temporal things that um, allow the elders to focus on ministry of the word and prayer. Of course, what that says to the elders is focus 
on the ministry of the word and prayer um, rather than focus on all kinds of other things that we can be distracted by that ought not to be our priority too. But then in verses 18, 18 13, it tells us about the qualifications, which is interesting again, because uh, in many respects, they're, they're, they're similar to the qualifications we read for elders last week. And if you remember, those qualifications had to do with their character and spiritual maturity, right? It wasn't about their skills and experience. Now this, again, may seem obvious when you just read it on the, on the surface, but uh, we can easily step out of uh, sort of out of, our, out of our, the path we ought to be on in, in screening and selecting people for um, stuff like the, the diaconate and focus on other things. But it says they need to be dignified, honest, self-controlled, grounded in the faith, and they need to love their families well. It doesn't say, how well do you operate a chainsaw? It doesn't say, you know, how, how high can you climb a ladder? It doesn't say, uh, you know, when you're, when you're seeking out deacons, it says that they must be first examined, right? But the examination is not, um, can you lift a 40-pound box? Can you lift about 20 of them in a row uh, on and off a moving truck? And by the way, can you do it this afternoon? I mean, th- those are not the interview questions For deacons, they have to do with character and spiritual maturity. We're not just looking for people who have a heart to serve, even though it's important that they have a heart to serve. We're not just looking for people who are willing to unlock doors and make coffee on Sunday morning, so you've got to be here a little early and stay late. Those things are true, but that's not all a deacon has to be. It's important but not sufficient. People who are being served uh, depend on the service that deacons provide. And so it's essential that deacons be dependable. People depend on it. It's important that they be dependable. It's important they don't have an unhealthy appetite for the things of the world. Because as they're distributing to others in need, they may think, oh, I'd like to have, i got some needs of my own. I'd like to have a little bit of that myself. Or maybe they begin to get envious because they think, why are they getting this and I'm not getting that? They need not have an appetite for things of the world lest they go uh, visiting lonely widows and manipulate the situation so that they they. You know, they get a nice gift from the widow. This, I'm, I don't have a specific scenario in mind, but you know this kind of thing happens where people can say, oh, Miss Daisy, that's a nice-looking old Ford Thunderbird you got. Is the Thunderbird a Ford? I don't even know if that's the thing. You know, oh, that's my favorite. Sure do wish I... That's my dream car, you know. Now, that's, that's an exaggeration because she's probably not going to give you the Thunderbird. But, but the point is, people can manipulate the situation like that to end up benefiting and sort of taking rather than giving in their service. 
It's important that they be people of character, dignified and blameless, much like elders. I do want to notice, though, a few ways in which these qualifications are different from those of elders. Number one, um, deacons must hold to the faith with a good conscience, it says, but it does not say that they have to be able to teach. It tells us something about that the, the, the deacon is not a teaching role in the church. It also uh, does not indicate there's any sort of authority or oversight role. There, it omits something even at the end of uh, managing their own household well. That it says a little differently about deacons than it does about elders. Or there's nowhere that it says that deacons exercise authority or rule in any, in any way. And if you come from... Um, you know, a Baptist background in, in, in many Baptist churches, the deacons do what essentially elders do in our church. And um, I've been in those churches. I would just say to you, as I said when I was in those churches, there's no such thing in the Bible as a ruling deacon. Uh, there are ruling elders. There's no such thing as a ruling deacon. It's not an authoritative role. They don't teach. They don't exercise authority. And then... A significant difference is verse 11, and I wanted to draw some attention to this. And, and again, this is one of the reasons I wanted to uh, deal with this passage separately. Because there's verse 11. It says there, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. In Greek, the word for wives can also be translated women. It's the same word, and, and, it, and the context determines which is intended. Um, often, probably usually, context makes it clear which one is intended. Sometimes that's not the case. In fact, the word there isn't there in the Greek. The word there here has been added by the translator. The, the, this verse 11 begins either wives likewise or women likewise. Okay, And it's not clear uh, which of those it's referring to. It could be the wives of deacons. It could be just women deacons or what we call deaconesses, according to just, just what the original uh, text says here. This is making sense so far. Are you following with me? Okay, so it's unclear which meaning is in view. I'll, I'll just fast forward and say, um, I think probably the best way to understand is it refers to women deacons or at least opens the diaconate to women serving in um, that capacity. And I want to tell you uh, a, few thing, a few reasons why. Because number one, either way you slice it, women were to be involved in the, in the diaconal responsibilities. Because it, why would the character of deacons' wives matter just by itself? when there were no requirements for elders' wives. Did you notice it didn't say about elders? Elders' wives also must be this, that, or the other. No reason you wouldn't want elders' wives not to be double-tongued and all those kinds of things too, right? If, if, it just, if that was just on the surface, at its face value, it was just about that, that wouldn't make sense. Unless, again, those wives were going to be integrally involved in the service that deacons were providing. So deacons and their wives serving people. Um, and as I said, in, some, in, in which case, there's some expectation women are going to be involved, which means the, that that work is not limited to men doing it. 
Second thing I'd say is Romans uh, 16.1 mentions a woman named Phoebe. He's kind of signing off in that last chapter um, and mentions, you know, special greetings to a number of people, one of whom is Phoebe, who's referred to as either servant or deaconess. Once again, it, it could be translated either way, um, but it's really reasonable to think she is a deaconess of the church. Uh, and even if that's not the case, there were deaconesses in the early church, um, even though the, the requirements and boundaries of their service are unclear. But um, again, this is one of those passages, it's, it's, it's a bit ambiguous in the way we, we encountered the one in First Timothy 2, where I said, Here, here's the reasons why people debate um, over whether this is a prohibition on uh, women elders or not. Um, there's, there's just some things that aren't stated real explicitly or clearly. And this is another one of those. But again, in, in my sort of take on that, um, it seems there's no reason for that uh, service opportunity to be closed to women as we, uh, as we don't close it here. Uh, so we have women deacons among us even now. But that's the justification for it. In other words, because you know, people will come right back to verse 12 and see, let the deacons be the husband of one wife. Of one wife. So what do you do about that? Um, so it's, again, either talking about deacons, male deacons, and then women deacons, or it's talking about deacons and their wives uh, and so forth. So we'll be charitable to one another and that, and um, we're grateful for our women deacons. <laughs> we'll be charitable and grateful all at the same time. But, but, but in, in that, I mean, one of the things is, as we sort of connect the dots between elders, deacons, and then the following passage, I'm going to try to sort of make the, the segue here. It says, El- elders must be able to teach the truth. Deacons must hold to the truth with a clear conscience. And then it says that the church must uphold the truth in verses 14 and 15. That the church must uphold the truth. And, and he has said here that he, he's told us why, you know, he's gone halfway through the letter now and said the reason that he's writing. I mentioned this a few weeks back. But it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Okay? The reason he's writing is so that if he doesn't come, to walk them through some things that you might know how things need to be ordered and organized and and how people need to relate with one another, especially in the context of a church that's being uh, disrupted by false teaching and disrupted by false teaching coming from even among their elders. But I'm writing to you, you might know how uh, one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says it's a church of the living God, not a, not a church of inanimate gods with a small g. The people living in Ephesus would have been real familiar with all kinds of pagan worship, uh, where, they, where they worship little idols, carved images of things they would come and feed and they couldn't eat. I mean, idols that needed them they needed people to do for them because they couldn't do for themselves. They, they knew of those kinds of gods. Paul tells them, this is the church of the living God. But the second 
uh, part of that is to sort of recognize, be arrested by the fact that it is the church of the living God and it is not our church. And, and we need that reminder more often than we get it that, it, that it is not our church. We don't set things up in a way to sort of meet our demands and desires to satisfy our appetites for things. It is the church of the living God the pillar and buttress of the truth. Your translation may say pillar and foundation or pillar and ground of the truth. The idea is that there are structural elements in a building that hold up, you know, in some cases, the, you know, the walls and the roof, but they, for the church, this metaphor is laid out there for us. They hold up the, the truth. You may be familiar with the, uh, concept or whatever of the buttress and maybe even have seen the flying buttresses in the old um, gothic cathedrals from the middle ages those ones where they they discovered they could build these cathedrals with um, high 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 ceilings and the way that they could do that was that they had these arches almost that extended out from the walls uh, way down to you know, out to towers beyond those and eventually down to the ground. It distributed the weight way on out there so they, they could have these high, thin walls that were, it was just a, a discover, an architectural discovery, a departure from what had been true all that time. But they had to have these buttresses, otherwise the walls would, they would buckle. If you put walls that high, they would just, they would just buckle and, and crumble and cave right in. It buttresses uh, the weight of those walls. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. We might picture a human pyramid, um, even where you have people standing at the top holding a banner. You've maybe seen cheerleaders that have done that sometimes, or they, they've got one of those big banners that the football team's going to run through, and it's such a big banner that they've, you know, they, they've got to essentially build a pyramid or whatever so people are standing on top of other people and holding them up. But it's for the purpose of holding up a banner. And each of us in the church needs to see, see ourselves as part of the pyramid. That we hold on to the truth and we hold up the truth. That if the, if the pillars and the buttresses are not holding up the truth, they don't serve any purpose. And it is the truth, not a truth, not your truth. There's a lot of talk about truth in our culture and even in places inside the church, but it's really defined much more by the individual or their own concept of what that is rather than objectively as God has revealed it. I, I saw this illustrated um, in what I found to be a really helpful way. Uh, just this last week, an online article, there's a pastor named Jonathan Lehman who illustrated how the Bible can be used to help us arrive at our predetermined conclusions rather than helping us arrive at the truth that God intended to reveal. Okay? The Bible can be used to arrive at predetermined conclusions rather than arriving at the truth he wanted us, that he intended to reveal. 
to us. He, he's speaking in this article specifically about the way it's used and applied to political issues. Uh, the principle applies in, in broad areas too. But here's what he said. When it comes to determine how the Bible addresses political issues, its many related verses can feel like a massive sack of Legos. One person opens a sack and builds a car. Another, a brontosaurus. Another, an old western town. With enough skill, you can build whatever you want. Want to make the Bible say welfare policies are bad? Find a proverb on laziness leading to poverty. Proverbs 10.4. You want to say the opposite? Find another proverb calling people to defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. The point is not that the Proverbs contradict themselves. All these passages say something true, but we lack clear rules for knowing how any one of them should guide today's public policy. Further, we too often witness people in parties exploiting the Bible for their own purposes. Okay? So we might even think about this as, as, as a sack of Legos that was originally purchased as one of those sets where you were supposed to build something specific. Maybe you've seen them in the toy section of uh, Walmart or the toy store or whatever, where you're going to build like a battleship out of Legos or a whole city or, you know, a spaceship or whatever the thing is. But it's got this picture on the front of what it is and all the little characters. And if you've got one of those sets where you've got a sack full of those Legos, but the box with the picture on it has long been lost. Yeah, I mean, you don't even know what it's supposed to be. Right? But it doesn't matter because you can make other stuff out of the Legos. Make anything you want. And perhaps more than we realize, Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals with a capital E, have amassed a sack of Legos. In all the Bible that we've learned, the Bible verses, Bible phrases, and that kind of thing, we've got our own sack of Legos that we piece together in ways that we've, we understand they're supposed to be pieced together, in ways maybe we've heard they ought to be pieced together, in ways at times where, again, it, it, it supports and affirms our own predetermined conclusions about other things. We've got, a, we've got a handful of verses we can pull together and assemble that are supposed to lead us to the truth and may not lead us there at all. And yet we build up our own confidence in it and even mislead others in the process. And it's really primarily because of this conviction that that is true of us and that what's true of God is that he has spoken clearly. The Bible's a big book, but it does have an overarching message to it. It started somewhere, it led somewhere, it, it, the, the Bible finishes somewhere, and the story it talks about um, has even a finish yet to come. But it's primarily because of this conviction that I approach preaching the way that I do. That is, preaching expository messages through books of the Bible, and I know not everybody likes that. Would that be helpful for me to go ahead and acknowledge? Yeah. Not everybody likes that. I mean, people would like to, to hear messages about this topic or that topic or whatever. And as I've spoken to this before, I mean, because you can understand why. 
this or that topic would actually be good to speak about, right? I mean, they're, they're relevant topics and needful in some respect. But when you preach through the Bible, when you study through the Bible, it forces you to put the Legos together as they were intended to go together. Have you noticed there have already been a couple of topics in this series on 1 Timothy that I might not have chosen to preach if they hadn't just shown up <laughs> on the next page. But that's how it goes. And, you, and, and over time when you do that in the life of a church, in the life of an individual, as you read and study the Bible yourself, you begin to, to recover a sense of what is that picture of how all of those little Legos are supposed to be put together. The whole truth of Scripture gets preached. The whole truth of Scripture gets studied. The whole truth of Scripture gets affirmed and upheld by the church. And if the church lets go of the truth, it really eventually ceases to be the, church, the truth because it, the gospel is there. And there is the true gospel and all kinds of false gospels. There's all kinds of other pursuits that you can uh, chase, that you can justify pursuing them in your own mind out of the scriptures, but you might be missing the gospel entirely. And so it's why he even concludes here in verse 16. We confess this mystery of godliness. It's like this is an early hymn that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. If the Bible read, studied, preached, and whatever else, if it is not pointing you to Jesus, if it's, not, if it's not pointing you to a message of God's grace that he set about uh, from the very beginning of the Bible, that he revealed from the very beginning of the Bible, if it's not pointing you in that direction, it's pointing in the wrong direction. If the church lets go of the truth, it ceases to really be the church. And so how are, what are some responses that uh, we might be inspired to take, motivated to take, um, out of this message, again, you, could, you can hear there's almost, it could almost be two different messages of serving the church and then upholding the truth. But with regard to deacons, I would say to the deacons, stay, stay in close, constant relationship with Jesus. Now that sounds kind of cliche. That sounds cliche. But those things that are, that are required of deacons, that you be dignified and not double-tongued and not addicted to much wine and, uh, you know, not slanderers and uh, all of those things. If you uh, disconnect from the constant flow of the life and truth of Jesus in you, those, those attributes will gradually cease to be true and cease to define you. Have you discovered this about yourself yet? Like, just unplug for a little while. You'll get good and nasty, right? So stay, deacons, stay in close, 
constant communion relationship with Jesus. Because what, what is required of you as a deacon is different from what was required of you before you were a deacon. What's required of you is more than what's required of just the average person. Be a person of exemplary character and spiritual maturity. So that's the word to the deacons. To congregants, the word would be thank your deacons and pray for them. They don't get thanked nearly enough. Can we thank them right now? Uh, It, it is um, very often work that goes unseen. It's, it's often thankless kinds of tasks, but be uh, lavish in your thanksgiving and praise for them. And then to everyone, um, as we are charged to uphold the truth, you need to lay hold of it in the first place. You need to lay hold of it. And that would involve, I would suggest, a plan to read the Bible through systematically. If you haven't ever done, if you ever ever read the Bible all the way through, set out a plan to do that. If you have read the Bible all the way through, set out a plan to do it again. Get a good study Bible. Because this isn't all that hard, by the way. This this isn't really all that hard to do. Get yourself a good study Bible. If you, uh, if you don't have one, uh, the ESV study Bible, I think is a really high quality study Bible. Get a good study Bible. Be unhurried and persistent in your study. And um, just have a plan to read through in one year, two years, three years. If you read read one chapter of the Bible a day, you can read through the whole Bible in just just over three years. Just one chapter a day. And so it's not that far out of reach uh, to do it in one or two. Um, here's a way that you can even schedule into your life to do that. How many of you, raise your hand if you wake up every morning? Okay, that's good. Some of you not quite on Sunday morning apparently, but okay. All right, and raise your hand if you go to sleep or at least try to every night. <laughs> okay, all right. So, I mean, one of the ways that you could do this is when you wake up, Read your Bible and pray. And right before you go to sleep, do it again. So you you can create a little bit of time. I'm obviously being a little uh, facetious about that, but in all seriousness, I mean, you you can build a little time. And even if it's a little time, you can be unhurried about it, but be persistent in it. And your knowledge of the truth will grow. Your uh, life will be transformed as your knowledge of the truth grows if you're uh, if you're communing with the Lord in that pursuit, um, and you will have a firm grasp on the truth that we're charged to uphold. Well, let's pray together. Um, Lord, thank you indeed for the gift that the church is to us, the church of the living God, that we're a part of an organic living family of faith, that we have people among us willing to serve in a variety of ways. We thank you especially today for those serving as deacons. And we do pray, God, you'd be gracious to them, that you would keep them close to you. Lord, your heart uh, knit to theirs, that they might desire more of the things you desire. 
and less of the things of the world. And God, we pray that in, in a world um, that, that is just cast off, even in some cases, the very notion of truth, of objective truth, in, in a world that espouses things that just border on insanity, that are just detached from reality. God, we pray that all the more in that setting that we would be stewards of the mystery of godliness that you've given us, Lord. Stewards of the truth. That we hold fast to it. That we uphold it. And that through the life of the church, the world hears the message that we're intended to proclaim of the good news of Jesus. So God, would you use us in those ways, work in us in order to do so. In the name of Jesus, amen.